This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with author Peter Russell about his latest book, Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature, an Eckhart Tolle edition. Peter Russell is an author, speaker, and leading thinker on consciousness and contemporary spirituality. He believes the critical challenge today is freeing human thinking from the limited beliefs and attitudes that lie behind many of our problems, personal, social, and global. His mission is to distill the essential wisdom on human consciousness found in the world's various spiritual traditions and to disseminate it in contemporary and compelling ways. Russell earned a first-class honors degree in theoretical physics and psychology, as well as a master's degree in computer science at the University of Cambridge, England. He also studied meditation and Eastern philosophy in India. He coined the term global brain with his 1980s bestseller by the same name, in which he predicted the internet and the impact it would have on humanity. He is also the author of 12 books, including Waking Up in Time and From Science to God. Peter Russell, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thanks. Lovely to be with you again. Well, it's good to have you, and it's uh, good to have the occasion uh, to discuss your latest book um, as the basis of this conversation. But before we get into that, I just wanted to find out, it's been a few years since we've seen you, in addition to writing this uh, book, which looks to be a considerable success. Um, What else have you been up to? Ah, living my normal, boring life. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's not boring. Sorry, let me take that back. Living my normal, gentle life. It's not boring at all. Um, I live in a wonderful house, have a nice garden. I I spend my time a mixture of writing, um, some thinking, gardening, hanging out, just... I think in recent years, I've, I feel I'm slowly, very slowly, if you like, don't like the word, retiring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in, the, in the literal sense of just pulling back. I don't feel I have a career to build anymore. Mm. I should probably spend the rest of my life slowly retiring. And just like it's, yeah, time to time to enjoy life. So I enjoy, I enjoy taking walks, going to the beach, um, that sort of thing. When, when's the opportunity to get up on mountains? I love being up high with good views. Um, cutting back on traveling anyway, pre-COVID, I'm getting a bit less enamored by traveling. Um, and then since COVID came along, it, it was interesting because I decided January, February of last, is it last year now? God, 2020, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, January and February, I had free. I didn't have to travel anywhere. And 
I wanted to start, we'll get this book done. And so I put aside January, February to write it, to start writing it. Because when I'm writing, I always sort of, I re- it's partly resent, but not resent at all. I mean, I, I love going out and doing workshops and lecturing at events. I love doing that. And when I'm writing, there's a little resentment, like because I've got to stop the writing, prepare, get ready for the travel. And then when I come back, it takes me about a week to really get back into the flow. And then, you know, as we all know, come the beginning of March, it said, you're not going anywhere anyway. <laughs> so for me, I know this is not true for most people. For me, it was almost like a godsend. I could just be at home and, you know, with a few good friends who are close friends who are very safe and just get on with writing the book. So that's an experience I've never had before of just having clean time where all I could do was write. I wasn't writing the whole time. I, I, I moved, you know, I could just move with however the muses were affecting me. So some days I wrote a lot. Some days I hang out in the garden, took walks, whatever. Got it. Well, uh, thank you for that uh, 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 background information. Let's get into the new book entitled Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature. So before we actually get into the meat of the book, I wanted to ask you, um, you've written a number of books before this. I wanted to ask you, in what ways is was writing this book different and in what ways was it similar to previous work that you've done? Right. Yeah, good question. Um, the way it's different is this is the first book I've ever written, which is more, what's the word? It deals more directly with the practice, the process of awakening, spiritual awakening. My other books have been more more conceptual in a way, uh, big picture books. I think what I'm known for is big picture of the universe, evolution, consciousness, science and consciousness, those sorts of things, where humanity is going. They've generally been big picture books. And this isn't at all. It's very different. It's really, this book is a sort of um, bring, bringing together what I have personally learned, discovered on my own journey of awakening. So it's very personal. It doesn't cite other references or footnotes or anything like that. It's really a personal collection of personal stories, some stories, but also just discoveries, realizations of how I see things, how I see um, spiritual awakening. I don't like the word spiritual, but conscious awakening. And I felt this was the time to do it. It'd be, it had been lingering in the back of my mind for a long time. And I'd even sort of started a couple of times. But feeling that in these times we are going through, we, we are going to be going through times of ever increasing change and surprises and perhaps squashed expectations and seeing letting go is going to be a skill that we're going to need more and more as we move into the times ahead. The ways in which it is similar is I think every book I've written in some way or another, the idea of the, the awakening of consciousness has been an underlying theme. Um, Perhaps in other books, I've been arguing for it, how important it is in this book. It's more 
um, sharing sharing my feelings, discoveries of how to how how we can just further further that. So I've written it really just with the hope that it it helps people on their own journey. And also, it's different. Other books, you know, chapter one, chapter two, we saw in chapter one this. You know, in chapter five, we'll be looking at this. And they're, they're sort of one whole piece. And with this book, I decided just to write it as it's actually 43, I think it's 43, separate pieces. They, they build on each other, but each piece sort of stands alone as a two or three page piece. And I think a lot, lot of people, the feedback I'm getting, people have appreciated that because it's something they can just pick up. I know I got actually a couple of emails from people saying, you know, I just pick it up each morning and read one section and then get on with my day. So it's different in that respect as well. It also strikes me that um, actually one of the endorsements on the back of the book uh, comments on the beautiful jargon-free guide. Jargon-free strikes me as as, um, uh, an accurate description uh, of of reading the book. And I don't know if if that was something that you were deliberately attempting to create or it just came along with the intention as as you were writing that manifested in that way. Right. And it's, it's been my intention for years um, to share these ideas in ways that don't really, don't go back to any sort of jargon from any other traditions or any contemporary new age jargon or anything. And it started way back when in the, in the eighties, I was my main work back in the eighties besides writing was actually working in corporations i was running seminars training people in personal development but obviously it brought in what were then contemporary ideas around mindset consciousness and some meditation and things but i wouldn't even use the word meditation then and i what i was excited by myself was how to take the things that were fascinating me back then and present them to people who would run a mile if they heard anything, you know, that even the word spiritual, they, they'd run a mile. And, you know, I was, I was getting paid to do work and, uh, for them. And so I was <clears throat> deliberately removing any jargon. And, and it's, been, it's been my way, I think, with all my, I think with nearly all my teaching over the years, my meditation groups and everything, I've always tried to, just present things in ordinary everyday terms. So I think I think that's important. I think, you know, whatever was the language in the past for presenting it, if the ideas are true, then they should be able to be presented in contemporary jargon-free terms. So it it wasn't an intention for this book particularly. It's been there. It's been there all along. This wishing to do it that that well, way. Yeah, I find that I've I found it very effective, and and I'm someone who uh, likes his jargon. But the what I found in reading the book was that uh, it was refreshingly free of that, so that I felt like I could hand it to even like people I work with, yeah. uh, and it wouldn't put them off in a way because it it really doesn't. It doesn't have the triggers that jargon or certain kinds of language might have to right. people who are distancing themselves from uh, anything explicitly spiritual. Right. I mean, there are, <coughs> there are excuse me, 
there are times when I, you know, refer back to, you know, perhaps the root of some, <coughs> excuse me, some word that's used in, you know, Eastern teachings like, right. you know, samsara or ananda, but, <clears throat> but only to go back. I like to go back to the original meanings of words. It's what's one of my things I love to do, just to go back to the original meaning. So people who have come across these words in the past as a way of helping them see the deeper meaning and, again, bringing out the deeper meaning in ways that are absolutely relevant to today. Well, I think it's fair to say that you um, you do that in this book in a way that uh, uh, it doesn't project an air of scholarly detachment, but rather um, uh, you're simply trying to make relevant uh, um, that those those original meanings. Yeah. 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 So um, the uh, you start off in your preface. I'm just going to quote here. Um, We are not letting go of things themselves as much as the way we see them. Yes. Hence the title of this book, Letting Go of Nothing, or as I sometimes like to put it, Letting Go of No Thing. So did you start off with that framing of what you wanted to do in the book, or did that arise in the process? That arose in the process. I mean, I wanted to write a book. Letting go has been a theme that's interested me for years, when I first started meditating many 50 years ago, I realized, you know, part of meditation was letting go. And I would, I would come across it many times. And so I, I was always exploring letting go and things that would facilitate letting go. And then realizing that it's not, you know, when we talk about, oh, I need to let go of my, or whatever it is, this job or relationship or my belief in so-and-so, we're not actually letting go of the thing itself. What we're letting go of is our attachment to it. And our attachment is really is a, is how we see things. It's a mindset. Our attachment is a certain way of seeing it. So if we're, you know, letting go of, you know, say a relationship, we can be attached to, you know, how we thought it could be, our expectations or our there or something but it's the attachment we need to let go of and the attachment is not actually a thing you can't sort of look inside and say there's my attachment we can look inside and say oh here's my feeling here's my you know jealousy or whatever or here's my thoughts so in a way thoughts and feelings are things but the attachment is just the the lens through which we see things and although i don't didn't put in the book but if you're looking at the world through rose-tinted glasses or any, any tinted glasses, you see the world that way, but you don't see the lens itself. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing. We don't see, we don't see the lens by which we're looking at the world. So it's, in that sense, it's not, it's not a thing in our world of experience. And so it's really it's a change of mind. It's a change of mindset. So, so I'm curious in that in that description how you would understand uh, relative strengths of attachments because I can have a casual belief about how things are that's not you know particularly right. I'm not really committed to, and then there's things that I'm incredibly uh, committed to in some form or another, consciously or unconsciously, and right. 
there does seem to be a qualitative difference between those two. So there seems to be something in addition to the lens that's functioning. It's yes. Um, I see that as the, the, the effect, the impact it has on us, perhaps even the cost it has on us. So, Mm. I mean, in the book, I'm not talking about, we've got to let go of everything. Not at all. It's Mm -hmm. like when we have some, some emotional attachment, Mm which we can see is getting in our way because it's leading us to feel upset or tense or we see ourselves responding in a certain way to somebody and we realize it's because of our attachment. So when we get those stronger attachments, we recognize them because they're, they're impacting our life in some way that we don't want. Then that's when we can begin to explore how to let go of them. But yeah, a, a lot of our attachments are just, they're things which are there and that they're, they're relatively harmless and they don't, bothers they may condition us they may condition us in certain ways but we live with them so this book is really about the ones that the ones that are getting getting in our way in some way making us tense something like that well and that was something i found interesting that you you draw a Mm -hmm. distinction uh in one of the chapters about the naturalness of certain kinds of responses to the world if we're in danger it's a natural thing to have a, an adrenaline reaction and a fight or flight response. Yes. And, and you draw the kind of the contrast with animals for whom the response will arise and it will pass pretty quickly when the circumstances no longer necessitate that action. And the challenge for humans is that we have these conceptual structures, which allow us to create linkages that, cause some of these senses and some of these uh, uh, feeling states to persist. So as yeah. into, if you could talk a little more about that, because there is a naturalness. It's, it's not like we're supposed to be dead to the world. I mean, uh, anger can arise and yeah. pass. But, you're, but what I understand you to say, it's, it's the clinging to that or holding on to that that becomes Ex- the root of some problem. Exactly. The, ho- the holding on to it. Yes, we get, you know, if something happens, we can be angry about it, and anger can be an appropriate response, or fear, or any other emotion can be an appropriate response at the time. Um, and it may well be triggered by, you know, past conditioning or even, you know, some trauma or something. But the, the, it arises. And so, you know, I use the analogy with a dog. A dog, you know, sees something that upsets it, and it, you know, it bark or chase a cat. But then it's over. And with us. I think it's partly because we have memory, we can think about things and go over things in our mind. And so we can hold grievances for years sometimes. I'm still so upset about this person, what they did, you know, last year or something or last week. We hold on to it because we can remember them. And when we do that, we're in a way reactivating that excitement. So if I, you know, remember something, how somebody made me angry in the past, by remembering that, I'm creating an image in my mind of that situation. And the brain really doesn't distinguish between a real situation in the world and the image I've created. And so it reacts the same way. And I will start feeling the same sort of tension in my body. And when we do that, almost continually, that tension begins to just build up. That's why I think a lot of us just live in a state of continual sort of slight background <clears throat> tension. Mm-hmm. Because we we never um, we never relieve it in a way. I mean, emotions 
are, I mean, I go back to the root, again, one of the root meanings for me of emotion is from the Latin, it means to act out, to, to act, not to act out in the psychological sense, but to move out. Motare is to move and the E in front means out. So any emotion is what psychologists call an action tendency. Any emotion mm. has an action tendency to do something and that doing something relieves it. It, 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 that's what it's there for and then we get on with life so you know the dog the action tendency is to chase the cat it chases the cat the cat jumps over the wall the dog looks a bit peeved for about 10 seconds and comes back and that's it it's done its action tendency whereas we just sit on it partly because yeah. we're we're so socialized it would be totally inappropriate to act on every emotion that <clears> came along <throat> so because of that we we build up this residual sense of tension. And that I think is because the thing that makes us unique from a dog is that we can, we can think about things and remember things and go over things in our mind. I don't think, I don't believe a, a dog does that. It may have, it may have memories which get triggered. You know, it may smell something by a tree when it's out for a walk and that smell may trigger, you know, the memory of another dog or something, but it doesn't go over things in its mind like we do. So, <clears throat> excuse me, on, uh, on page one, your first chapter after, okay. the, pre- after the preface, um, you, um, use, you, you report using a device that then is actually repeated many times, not as a device itself, but, but you do use this as a, as a way to frame how to let go. And that is, um, so you're, you're describing in this first page, um, um, I, um, having resentment against your partner. And, and um, you write, later I was sitting at my desk working on a project, but still distracted by the issue. I knew the problem lay in how I was seeing things, but I remained stuck. Then I thought to simply ask, is there another way of seeing this? So that... I'm calling it a device. You didn't in the book, but that that um, decision to question what you're seeing is a is a tool that that seems to be fundamental to the way you approach the issue of letting go. Can you speak yes. a little more yeah. about that? Yes, it is for me. It is fundamental, and I don't call it a device, but. I, I, I use it as a device myself. Um, it comes back to what we were saying about attachment being a way of seeing things, the lens through which we see things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I realized I was seeing things through a certain lens. But the thinking, I find the thinking mind often, it, it gets stuck. It can't, it can't see things in a different way because it, it knows what is right. You know, this is the right way to see it. You know, th- this is what's wrong. She's got to change whatever it was that was going on. Mm-hmm. And I believe, you know, deeper inside, beneath the ego mind, the thinking mind, we all have a, um, a truer way of seeing things. So we call it a wiser way. But our more authentic self sees things as they are. It isn't overshadowed by by all the, the thinking and the assumptions. And so that, that question I found really valuable insofar as it, 
it's an, it's an invitation for my deeper self to show me something I'm not seeing. Mm. And that's why the way I phrase the question and, and the way I think about it when I'm asking the question is always this sort of completely open, like with a curiosity. It's like, could there just possibly, I don't know, but maybe there's another way of seeing things. That, that attitude is really important rather than going, okay, what's another way to see this? If I go, what's another way to see this? I'm just getting wrapped up in another loop of the thinking mind. And I'm trying to come up with an answer. But when I pose the question in that way, in that very open way, then what happens, it doesn't always happen, but when it does happen, what comes is another way. I seeing. I find myself seeing things in a different way. It doesn't come as a verbal answer. Oh, you should see it this way. I just find the shift has happened. And, mm-hmm. and in that case, you know, it struck me, and the reason I quoted that at the beginning of the book, it was one of my early experiences of this. It happened virtually instantaneously. It wasn't like, you know, 10 minutes later. It was like within a second or two, I, you know, it was just so quick. I was just seeing things differently. I was seeing here is another human being with her history, navigating her way through the world, probably you know, having to navigate her way with me, deal with me and my stuff. And it was just, ah, there was just instant compassion it came. And and also that realisation, well, why hadn't I seen this before? It's so obvious. You know, of course that's the truth. But the reason I hadn't seen it before is I was so wrapped up in my way of seeing things, my attachments to how things should be. So that to me, when I, when I do that and I find what comes is something that's much more compassionate, there's a sense of obviousness about it, and usually there's a sense of ease that comes because it's like when I see it that way, it's like, ah, my tension was in resisting what was happening. Mm. Was, and that, that tension resistance goes. So it's, it's a principle. I use it in various ways through the book, not, you know, as you say, not really accentuating it, but it's a principle I find. You know, even if we're, you know, tuning into the body, I sometimes ask, you know, is there something in my body I'm not noticing? That sort of thing. And often something reveals itself, some whatever it is, tension or something going on. Yeah, yeah I appreciate yeah. it. Well, I, I was going to just follow yeah. up. Um, so the, you use the word just now, curiosity. And in fact, you use that word. Um, you, 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 at some points, it seems to me, um, you invoke the idea of curiosity as a way to ask this question yeah. and 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 I'm wondering does that at least in part come from your scientific training because that surely is a way that scientists um, investigate the universe mm-hmm. they, they approach a question perhaps having a projection or expectation but if they have curiosity then they can reframe in the way that you're describing yeah. you're doing in your personal life that's an interesting question. I've never thought about that, to be honest. Um, but as you mention it, I think it, I think it probably does or has played a role. I think it's not a, not a conscious thing, which I've taken from science, but mm-hmm. you're right. It, it's part of the scientific training is that, that openness, just looking, seeing what is there, being interested. So 
I think you may be right. I think there may be maybe some of that. It's more. It's just that's the practice I've developed. That's what I found helps. Is that right, principle right. of curiosity? But that, that's an interesting point. Yeah, thank you. It, it is interesting. Like uh, the the holding of a hypothesis is a yeah. fundamental <clears throat> tenet of, a, of of properly conducted science. And and yeah. I I found even. Uh, years ago and if i were because i had a scientific training like yourself you know I, when i would have disturbed states of mind sometimes there would be this sense of like well let's test if this is true yes yes <laughs> and, yes. and you know that uh so i can i can definitely see that connection uh the, the question i wanted to ask going back to um this sense of reframing is that I've had this feeling, you know, when I look at the spiritual project in general, or uh, or the project of awakening, that probably the most constant thread I see running through many traditions is the disidentification with thoughts as reality. And it seems like when you create that space, that's that's like a major phase change in a uh, uh, a mind. And no small feat, really, because we're so conditioned from so very young to treat our thinking as a, a, a reliable prediction of what's actually yeah. going on out there. So I guess the question I have about when you described early on having this experience of reframing was, do you feel like that was already a product of meditation work that you were doing, that it required a certain level of presence uh, and sort of, let's say, exercising that ability to persist with between thoughts or is the reframing just a reframing that uh sort of like changing the um uh, uh radio station no i think it, i think it comes from my meditation over the years because i think you know what the more one explores meditation you begin to see or i be, i began to see how the thinking, you know, it's a very, nothing wrong with thinking. It's a really useful skill to have. It's made us what we are. It's, it's great. But a lot of the time we're thinking thoughts which are unnecessary. They're repeats. They're something we're imagining might happen or whatever it is. We're ruminating on something and seeing that that just, that covers up the present moment. It covers up our own natural presence. And having seen that, continually over the years seeing what how thoughts um yeah over overshadow who we really are and it's just gradually become you know clearer and clearer and clearer that thoughts can thoughts can get in the way of it and we need to step beyond the thoughts in some way or another they're not the be all and end all of everything so that's definitely come out of yeah a lot of practice of meditation just just seeing just seeing mm -hmm. the impact of that continual thinking and how it gets in our way at times. Yes. So um, at the beginning of the book, you have a, a series of chapters discussing the, uh, um, the process of letting go, I guess. Um, and, um, and you discuss things like it's hard to let go. It can be, it can be difficult, but then there's two chapters following that letting in and letting be and i and and 
I don't want to summarize it. I'd rather have you summarize it for, for our listeners, because these are, these are key steps, it seems to me, in this process. Right. And this is really the crux of the book for me. And this is something which I really discovered for myself over the years. You know, we think, you know, letting go, people say, oh, I've tried to let go. I just can't do it. You know, letting go is hard to do. I think there's a song there somewhere. Yes, there is indeed. It's, it's because we we think of letting go as something we do. You know, I've got to do the letting go, but it's really we've got to undo the holding on. And an example I use is if you're holding on, you know, holding on to a small rock, holding it up in the air, you're gripping it, and it's that gripping which is holding it there. If you want to let go, you put your attention to the hand and you notice the gripping and you begin to allow it to relax and the rock falls. Letting go happens when you allow the muscles to relax. And I think it's the same with, you know, letting go of emotions, beliefs, stories, whatever it, whatever it is. It's not something we actually do. It's more creating the right mental environment, if you like, in which the letting go can happen. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I found is these, these two steps are really, really important. They're the opposite of what you think. It's sort of, you think letting go of something means getting rid of it. If I want to let go of this idea that's getting my way, I need to get rid of the idea. I banish it to the back of my mind. I try thinking something else, whatever it is. So it's all about getting rid of it and in the end that may be our goal is to be free from it but we don't get free from it by pushing it away it just sits on the edge of our mind still controlling us i think it was carl jung who said what you resist persists and i think that's very true it's just sitting there still controlling us and so what i what i began to explore and just deepened this over my life is to change it the other way around the first step is letting it in so actually allowing in the experience of holding on. So the first thing that letting in is usually if we're holding on to something that's, you know, causing us some distress, there's usually some tension there in it, some tension, some uptightness in our being, something or other, tightness in the mind. Just letting that in, noticing how it feels to be holding on. That, that can be really important. That's like noticing how your hand feels when it's holding holding the rock. So, so letting in how it feels to be holding on is really important. And then also I take I explore an emotion in sort of some detail. With, with an emotion, as we touched on before, there's always some body sense, that tend, action tendency. So to actually be, again, curious, to allow in what is actually going on. What is that? What What are the different sensations in my body? Not to not to analyze them or work them out, but purely on a feeling level, allowing in the actual experience. So, if it's say anger, you know, we probably you know, we notice the obvious things. You know, my teeth are clenched, my my fists are clenched. But then going deep, it's like, and what else is there? Oh, there's a sort of I see there's a tightness in my stomach, or oh, I can feel my legs are tense, or well, there's this uncomfortable feeling here, just to allow it all in. And then the letting be is not trying to change it, which is also, I think, really important. Not trying to change it, but allow, just allowing it in and letting it be. And 
what I found time and time again when I do that is it begins to soften. It's like the emotion, it's a call for attention in some way. Any pain, any discomfort is a call for attention. And so instead of taking our attention away from it, we give give it our attention. And it just begins to, not always, but generally it begins to soften and the letting go begins to happen on its own. And the other part of that, with, with any emotion, there's always a story. There's always something we're telling ourselves, some narrative that's going on about it. You know, this this person, you know, is a stupid blah blah blah, or they shouldn't have done this. They upset me. They got in my way. Whatever it is, there's a story about how the other person behaved, or sometimes how your computer behaved. Even <laughs> there's some some story that things went wrong and got in my way, and just to to let that in because often. We don't we don't do that. We're we're upset because of what they did, but we don't let in the deeper story of how what they did, how it got in our way. So we can do the same there. We can let in the story, like just to begin to notice what we're telling ourselves and all the different subtle bits of it. And again, as we do that, it begins to soften and perhaps we begin to see, well, hang on, you know, I wonder what they were thinking when they did this. What was going on for them? Had they you know, had too many cups of coffee that morning. Who knows? Whatever it is, you begin to put yourself in the other person's shoes a bit when you let in the story and you see what it is. And that again leads to to a softening. So I've just found that principle of breaking down, letting go into letting in and letting be has worked in so many areas of my life. I mean, the very first time I discovered this was years ago, and I had an earache, just an ache in my ear, which had been there for a while. And I was lying in bed at night. And, I, and it just occurred to me, like, I had decided a pain is a call for attention. And what we do is we take painkillers, whatever it is, we resist it. And I just had this idea, you know, what if I give it my attention? And so I lay in bed and just gave this earache my full attention just noticing it how it actually felt all of that 10 minutes later it would have gone mm. and it's like wow well it's the same i mean Bruno Earhart used to do the similar thing in est those who yeah. mm. are old enough to remember est <laughs> but he would ask you know if you have a pain give it describe you know how big is it what's its color what's its texture that sort of thing he'd go over and over again just going back basically feeling the sensation and again and again people would notice you know after doing this cycling describing it this way that way a few times it would get less and often disappear so that's why i came across it so i, so I think it's a it's a very valid principle in my life that and that's why i based the not based the book but it comes up again and again in the book yeah it, it raises an interesting question about the body's role in storing the configuration or the energetic pattern of some of these states because i think you mentioned earlier you know like as you were describing anger that anger one of the signals in the body is like clinch clinch teeth you know tension and things like that and it seems like whether it's as a result of trauma or repeated situations that um our bodies can become conditioned to a certain kind of response. And 
that adds momentum. I, I guess going back to the earlier discussion about uh, levels of intensity, it you know feels like the deeper something's inscribed in the body, the more persistent it is. Yes, yes, yes. And one thing, often we don't we don't notice the, the tension. Sometimes we do. We really notice it. But what I also like to do from time to time is coming back to this curiosity question, just saying, just stopping and saying, is, is there some tension in the body I'm not noticing? Mm-hmm. And almost always, something. well, not, not in the body necessarily, <clears throat> it could be in the mind or sort of t- tension in my being, but just to, just to notice that because it, it builds up. We're not aware of how it, how it builds up and, you know, then it builds up so much that we start getting stressed and, you know, we get, start getting sick because of it. So I think the more we can recognize this residual tension, I think the better. One one question I had in, uh, that was coming up when you were just uh, describing a moment ago, this process is um, you, you used a couple of examples and uh, or several examples, and a, at least a couple of them were involving people where it is, I think, quite understandable and natural that we we um, our minds project intention yeah. onto the other person. They must have wanted to hurt me, annoy me, whatever it was. Um, but but I, I loved your example of the computer because goodness knows um, if we think about it even for a moment, we we know that we really can't project intention onto the computer that, that isn't doing well. <laughs> Some people do. I, 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 well, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm saying, I'm not saying you can't do it, but I'm saying if you, if you reflect on it at all for a moment, and in fact, that's kind of the curiosity. That's where the curiosity, okay, am I really thinking of this thing? Yeah. Um, uh, this machine as something that has intention in the way that I usually project onto other people. And usually that's enough. When I get annoyed at, at, at computers or things like that, yeah. so that's usually enough to uh, help me realize that, oh, I'm, I'm projecting onto this situation yes. something yeah. that isn't there. Yeah. Yes, I think, I think we could all probably relate to that. And I think behind that, whether, whether it's a computer or a person or an airline reservation or something, Mm-hmm. The underlying thing is this situation, whatever person caused or not, this situation is interfering with my ability to lead the life I want, to have comfort, to to be happy, to be content. So it's something interfering with my expectation of how life should be. And I think that that's the root of it. Well, that's that. You, you happen to have hit right on the next chapter. What do you What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> which is which is pretty appropriate. So, um, so, so, yeah. It's uh, so you're inviting in that chapter and throughout the book. I, I think uh, a um, some self reflection about this, about what's what's going on. Yes. Yes. Um... And it's really, you know, the question is, 
when you ask the people initially the question, what do you want? You know, well, I want a better job. I want, you know, my partner to do this. I want whatever it is, a nice vacation, whatever it is. I want it to be sunny tomorrow. And then you, you ask people to look deeper. Why do you want these things? You know, why do you want a why do you want a vacation? Well, I feel, you know, I want the rest. I want to change. I, you know, I love being in the sun, whatever it is. But you go deeper. You keep on asking the question deeper and people you know the answers that people end up with is well you know i'll be happier i'll be more content i'll i'll enjoy it um i'll feel i'll feel better and so it's pointing what i'm pointing out is that our true bottom line is nothing to do with what's happening in the world or money or anything like that but our true bottom line as conscious beings is how we feel inside and the the goal of everything underneath everything even you know being philanthropic helping a person across to do something across the road at our own inconvenience we're doing it because deep down we feel better and so seeing that a better state of mind is what we really want ultimately and and this is not this is not new i think all you know all the great spiritual teachings have pointed that out i think it was the dalai lama said in the final analysis the hope of every person is peace of mind yeah so it, it's it's a it's a universal truth but pointing it out to people because we don't think that we think what i need is whatever it is you know on the most coarse level i need more money you know but money's just gives us the opportunity to buy the things the opportunities the the friends even that will make us happy so that's what we want deep down. And so that becomes just a core thing through the book to recognize that in everything we do, what we're really looking for is something of that nature. We give it, you know, there's different words. We can call it happiness. There's different flavors to it. Happiness, inner peace. I like the word contentment because it's neutral. And is that sense that everything's okay. Or even sometimes I just call it okayness. I want that sense of okayness inside yeah i was just going to say that uh, um i'm assuming that you're linking that the you know one of your subsequent chapters is uh, i think it's return to natural mind and i'm wondering based on the discussion you you just offered um if that's another way to describe this uh um this state of being content with um what is yes 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 um I use the term natural mind to refer to how we, how the mind is, how we feel when everything is okay in our world, when there's no, no danger, there's no threat, our needs are fulfilled, nothing, nothing to worry about. So it's, it's the unperturbed <clears throat> mind. It's the mind that's unperturbed by thinking, worry, concern, or even excitement and planning and all that stuff. And, it's just almost by definition, it's like when everything is okay in the world outside, we feel okay inside. Unless, you know, I point out later in the book, we start creating lots of discontent for ourselves, even though the world is doing fine. So I call it natural mind in the sense that this is how the mind is when it's not perturbed by worry, concern, etc. But I also point out it's, it's natural, it's not the normal state. The normal state for most people is the perturbed state of mind yeah. because we've got some we've got some discontent 
And so it's like the normal state of mind is one of discontent about something or other, whatever it is, even our to-do list is this, you know, oh God, I've got to do this now, whatever it is. We, we live in a state of sort of, you know, semi-gentle discontent. And the natural mind is when we let all that go, then the natural mind is a state of contentment. It, it, go on, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to, uh, as you're saying this, it's coming, I'm thinking of uh, some of the recent books by Antonio Damasio about homeostasis and that that life life is always seeking homeostasis. And yes. In, in, in a way, I, it seems like you're describing homeostasis like the, this this state of internal balance where right. every, everything is at ease. Right, yes. In fact, in an earlier version, I did talk about this, but I decided it was going to be a bit too technical. So, yeah. in order to keep the book simple, keep, keep the jargon out. Yeah, no, well, <laughs> I told you I like jargon. <laughs> Homeostasis isn't jargon, but it starts needing a little bit more explanation. But yeah. absolutely right, absolutely right. The body's tendency is to preserve homeostasis, which is, you know, to just de jargonize that for people, which is the basically the optimum conditions for the functioning of the organism. And and I think what we're talking about in natural mind is the inner correlate with that. If we if if we're in a state of homeostasis where you know the body is functioning well, there's no danger or something. We've dealt with that. Then it feels okay inside. So that so that feeling of okayness is a reflection of that. And just as the body has its drive to maintain homeostasis, so the mind is actually driven to look for contentment. And so when, when we're discontent, there's nothing wrong with the discontent. The discontent is actually the motivation to do something to return to contentment. And it's actually the motivation, psychological motivation, if you like, to preserve homeostasis. So if you are if you're going out and it's like cold, wet weather, if you haven't got the right clothing on, you're going to feel discontent. And that discontent is the motivation, you know, to go back inside and put on some better clothes or, or stay inside, whatever it is. So that motivation to feel better is actually the fundamental motivation to preserve ourselves. Well, that, that all makes sense. But there is one part of uh, one thing that you just said that, that, that I want to drill down on just a little bit, which is okay. you use the word excitement as if that were necessarily not part of unperturbed nat- natural mind. And I, I can understand why that would come up for you. But I'm but I'm thinking about the excitement that comes in the cre- in creativity. So. So to use a very basic example, when I was five years old, um, our neighbor had this huge sandbox. I mean, really enormous. Um, and um, I spent, I remember going over there and spending an afternoon in, in what I would call a state of kind of creative excitement. I mean, it, it varied in my recollection. We're looking back a long, many years now, many decades, but... Um, but but there was um, I don't think I was trying to fix anything. I was creating a landscape in this sandbox, you know, and 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 playing at creating a story about how the rivers and valleys and hills, as I was thought to be creating them or representing them, 
um, was this profoundly creative and agreeable mm-hmm. um, creative uh, play. So what about play? Is that, is that, is that an app? Uh, is that something different than natural mind? Would you say? Um, just, I think we need to just drill down a little bit in terms of words here. I would say play, play is completely natural. I mean, one of the things I'm mm-hmm. fascinated by all my life has been watching how animals play. Fascinating. I won't go into that now, but I'm just fascinated mm-hmm. by all different sorts of animals we don't even consider would play, actually play. So mm-hmm. I think play, play is a very natural thing. And play is a way of testing our, testing our skills, our relationships. And, and it does bring, it brings contentment. We feel okay. So I think play in itself is completely natural. And that what you talk about, that, excitement call it excitement of creativity i i know that well when things are going well i'm on a, on a run it feels good it, that excitement it feels good and so there's i wouldn't say there's anything wrong with that what i was thinking of when i used the word was more like when we get excited about you know oh i'm going to be going to the fair tomorrow and when I, this is going to happen mm. and i'll be able to do this or that or i'll meet mm. so and so that's it when we're getting into some future story, mm. that sort of excitement actually it. gets it gets in the way of just the feeling, the contentment in the moment. It's, That's clear. Thank yeah. you. So, so I this idea of natural mind uh, to me is you know I I've worked in the fourth way tradition and and there's this term essence, which is contrasted with uh, uh, sort of personality and. It seems like essence in, in, in natural mind sort of speak to the same concept of something that's still it's still associated with the body and the uh, the brain and the heart. You know, we have it, it's the functioning of the organism in a way. Yeah, yeah. And when it's functioning well, there's natural mind. But you also in the book, in the later chapters, start to go into the notion of self, like, like with a capital S. Yes, and I'm wondering if you could uh, distinguish self, how you understand self in this context, and its relationship to natural mind. Yes, um, I see. There's there's three different sorts of self. There's uh, a per- personality self, which we identify. That's, that's an identification. You know, I am Peter Russell, writer. Uh, British, half British, whatever it is, that's our personal self. My whole history is there, you know, our narrative self and, you know, my, whatever my skills are or whatever my um, detriments are. There's an identity with, that's what I call the personal self, which is an identity. And then when we drop behind that in natural mind, uh, a lot of that stuff has dropped away. We're no longer so concerned about, I don't know, so concerned about how you see me because you know my concern about how you see me is going to be you know is this right am I going to be okay does he like me does he like my personal self um is he going to get in the way of what I want etc in in natural mind there is what I call the authentic self the authentic self and I think this is probably what you know talking about at essence the, or maybe the other one as well but authentic self is what how I am when I'm not overshadowed by all this other stuff that goes on. And so my authentic self is, 
it's very active in the world, it, it's, but it's much more in tune with what is needed in the environment rather than what my ego thinks is needed. So the authentic self, I mean, coming back to the example we used earlier, you know, when I was getting into a little squabble with my partner, what, what I did then by doing that exercise, I was allowing my sort of personal self with all its stuff, to, I was allowing myself to step behind that and the authentic self came through. The authentic self just says, you know, here's another human being, you know, be a bit compassionate. That's the authentic self. And then there's what's often called sometimes spiritual traditions talking about maybe this true self, the pure self, or the self with a capital S to distinguish it from other selves. And that's that's something different. That's that sense of I-ness, the sort of sense of I am a being, which is always there, but it's very seldom noticed. There's that sense of, you know, the I that is you know, listening to this right now, the eye that is speaking, the eye that is seeing what's out the window. It's, it's the same eye that was experiencing the world yesterday, 10 years ago. It's that same sense of I am, which is, when, you know, back as far as I can remember in my childhood, that, that, that sense of my own personal being, my identity self may have changed, you know, many things. I wasn't a writer back then, but lots of that stuff changes. But that deep, deep sense of I am is always present. But we don't notice it most of the time because our attention is directed outwards. And by outwards, I mean it could be directed out into the world, what I'm doing, but even directed into thoughts. When I'm engrossed in thinking, my attention in a way, thinking is taking us out, away away from ourselves. So it's that sense of it's that sense of I am. Not I am Peter Russell, but just I am. And that's that's what I that's why I point to, as it was often called, the pure self or just self with a capital S. It's that it's ever present and it never changes. But it's something I say we don't recognize. And a lot of what you know spiritual traditions are about is saying, you know, the more we can get in touch with that sense of our being, the freer we are. Yeah, the the non-dual traditions uh, uh, certainly highlight that self and practice uh or non-practice uh, however they can configure it uh, <laughs> is is about returning your attention to the i am prior to even natural mind and, yes yes and i'm as a tech as a method and a uh I, I think the claim is and and i think there's some merit to this claim that uh, that doing that does create does allow us uh creates a support for disidentifying from, let's say, the personal self. And, yes. But it's interesting because I, I and this is a, a, a question I come back to with these practices, uh, uh, and I get from your book, and that's what I appreciate about it, is that it seems to really lock in those changes, though uh, you still have to operate at the natural mind level or the authentic self level. And, and that there's, if there's, I don't like to use the word work because I think undoing is just as, uh, is, uh, is, I mean, undoing is a doing. It's just it's yeah, yeah, doing yeah, it yeah. though, time yeah. reversed, if you will. But, uh, but there is, there is action or, or reversal of action, uh, that seems to be useful in allowing us to more consistently return to the authentic self. And yeah. from there, 
our relationship to the self of the capital S, I think, is more abiding and more 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 permanent or more permanently accessible. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling because this is hard stuff to talk about. I'm, I'm wondering if you agree that, you know, beyond just returning your attention to self of the capital S, that there is a, something that we can do at the authentic self level that's useful for instantiating, I guess, this kind of awareness in our lives. Yes, it's almost like the authentic self is is sitting midway between these two selves. And I think it's it's the authentic self which can it can see it can see what's happening. It can see where we're getting caught up in stuff and and recognize that and it can begin to see that it can see the value of letting go of some of the personal self stuff. It sees the value of coming back to that pure beingness and it can recognize that pure beingness much more easily so and i think it also sees well it it remembers it in a strange way although that sort of pure self doesn't have any qualities of its own it's just my beingness it i find it i find this fascinating it it has a deep memory of what it's like I, I just find it fascinating. I, you know, I can, you know, what I was feeling yesterday, those things I did, I took a lovely walk and I can sort of go back and conjure up the feelings. And I'm not quite sure whether they're right or wrong. But when I remember that, how it feels just to be in that stillness of authentic self, that memory is like so clear and so deep. Mm. And, I, and I think the, that, that, that's almost like my authentic self is remembering how that true self feels. And I find that fascinating that it's a, it's a memory which has no substance in itself, but is like, ah, yes. It's like that. It's that feeling of coming home. And, and when we're there, the, in a way, and we don't have the desires that the personal self has, or even the authentic self can have, because, you know, all, most of our desires in one way or another are, as we've been saying, coming back to feeling okay, that okayness, contentment, whatever you like, essence. And when we're, you know, sitting there, it's, there's, there's nothing else. You, you couldn't want anything else. This is what's interesting. It's like, why would I want anything else? And I think this is one of the, I don't mention this in the book, but another one of my um, etymological things is perfect. Sometimes in Buddhist traditions, it's called the great perfection. And, you know, we might think of that as, oh, it's the great perfection. It's like, it, it, it is perfect. You know, it, it's like some amazing thing. Perfect means it's been done through. Everything has been done. There's nothing more needs to be added. And that's, you know, that quality of the, that deeper sense of being there's nothing, nothing more can be added to it. You, you wouldn't want to add anything. It has no substance in itself, but it is perfect in that there is nothing that needs, that is being called to be done apart from resting in it and enjoying it. And then coming back into the world with that quality of freedom that's there and, and that sense of just deep, you know, beingness, being at peace. I don't know that sort of, doesn't quite directly answer your question it waffles around it 
Well, no, it's it's it's, it's uh, um, it, like I said, it, this this is kind of, for me. This is kind of hard to talk about. Yeah. Um, you since since you uh, quoted uh, Morris Nichol at one point in your book, um, oh, there was something in his psychological commentaries on the Gurdjieff tradition that I find speaks to part of what we're talking about, and that and that's like the challenge for a human being in their ordinary life is that their personality, this personality self, is dominant or you know active, and the authentic self is passive, and he construes the aim of uh, what the Gurdjieff tradition calls the work as learning to make the authentic self active and the yeah. uh, per- personal self passive. So, yeah. that we, so in a sense that we start to lead our lives from uh, this authentic self. Yes. But yeah. the, the, the other thing that I wanted to get your thought on is uh, in our own work with our uh, teacher, uh, he also had the idea that authentic self uh, does need to learn in this life. That oh, it, yes. Yeah. It does, it, it's, not, it's not like a, it's, it's not fully formed, unlike the self with a capital S, which is kind of unchanging. Authentic self does grow. Um, and we start out as very young children, you know, with the authentic self kind of raw and exposed to the world. And then, it, then, <laughs> then the world happens to us and we kind <laughs> of uh, learn to hide. So how does, in, in the way you've experienced it, how do you see authentic self-learning and what, under what conditions does the authentic self learn and grow? Oh, I think it's always learning and growing. I mean, the difference between the authentic self and what I would call the personal self is the personal self is tied up with its assumptions, beliefs, um, patterns, whatever, wherever they come from. The authentic self is... It's basically look, looking for how, how do I keep going in this world, socially, physically. It's, it's about survival. The authentic self, I find it, it, it's learning the whole time. It's learning, you know, it's learning what works. You know, if we could say, let's take a simple example of meditation. Um, the authentic self learns that if I allow the mind to quieten down, I will feel better, I will come to a state of stillness, which is beneficial for my life. I go into the world, go back into the world, feeling calmer, more open to other people. The authentic self learns that, you know, how to be kind to other people, how, how to relate to other people in a way that's more loving, that sort of thing. So it's coming from, it's coming from a different place, but I would say it, it's learning the whole time. It's, it, Yes, it's our individual, um, our individual, not unconditioned, but it's not, it's not, it's a self that's not perturbed by fear and anxiety and worry. But it, I would say it's learning the whole time. I find that. Yeah. So even if uh, in the terms that Stuart was just describing a moment ago, um, you're having the, the, the tiff with, with your partner. Yeah, and and you're identified with um, your view that she did something wrong. Right. Um, then um, my question is: Is it is the authentic self really learning when you're identified with your perspective, personal self perspective, or is it learning actually when you let go 
of your identification with the person love. And then that moment when you shift, when you could shift perspective, isn't that the moment of learning? Yes, yes, it is. And I would say that's a good example that the, you know, when, when that, when that shift occurred, there was then the learning, I mean, on one level, there's the learning, Hey, this practice works. I must do this more often. There was that learning. Mm-hmm. There was the, reminder you know that hang on everybody is fighting their own battle and that's a learning to begin to take into life mm-hmm. so you know there's probably other learnings there as well but so so i think yes the authentic self is learning from experience but it's learning about um what is it's learning i was let's put it this way it's learning wisdom about life rather than self-preservation mm-hmm. But that's the but but and that's the distinction I'm making. It's it's like if the personal self is active and the authentic self is passive, the, those two have to don't those two have to change places for for that profound learning of the authentic self to be facilitated, or am I misunderstanding? No, um, I think it's just a different way of putting it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the term change places more that personal self needs to be less, less active, become, be, be, be triggered less. It gets triggered by things. Okay. And so I think as we are more in touch with our authentic self, we feel we feel more stable in ourselves and so we're not going to be so kicked around by events that the personal self the identity Mm -hmm. self is not going to be triggered so much so i would say there's a gradual lessening of our attachment to the identity self and a gradual um familiarity and um valuing of the authentic self got it so there's a metaphor that I think comes up in the ta- uh, tantric traditions of uh, metabolizing the uh, personal self. Uh, so there's kind of, it's as it is, is though the authentic self is, what would you call it? Uh, it? It's like, perhaps the personal self is like the yolk of an egg. It's providing uh, food uh, for the authentic self. And what you've been describing in this conversation and in the book about putting attention on you know, letting in and uh, uh, letting be is the way in which this metabolic process takes place for the patterning and the information of the personal self, which is kind of a storehouse of experience in the world, becomes digested by the authentic self. And the authentic self becomes, when it, beca- when it comes to the fore more consistently um, as our practice unfolds, we have the benefit of the knowledge of the personal self, but none of the reactivity that you've been describing. Right. Well, I would say less of the reactivity. Yeah. <laughs> Just Fair. want to make clear, I am, yeah. I am, I am no wonderful, <clears throat> enlightened, awakened, perfect yeah. being. I am <laughs> work in progress. Yeah. Well, I actually, that's, that's an, that's a nice point that I, I think it's, it's maybe important to get to because uh, there's such a notion of, you know, in the language of enlightenment that you get enlightened and you're sort of done. And a different metaphor, which I I find uh, more compelling because I I work with a musical teacher uh, uh, because I study a Japanese bamboo flute and the teacher I work with is a master, but he 
really feels, he truly feels like he's a beginner, like he's constantly learning and that he wants to give away what he's learned so that he, in a sense, that he has space to learn more. And it's, yeah. and it seems like the, what you're describing, even with what you just said, but this was reflected in the book quite a bit is that this is a learning process that, you know, people may be, you know, more experienced in some ways and other ways, but, we, but everyone is a, still a beginner. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And I think, I mean, I've heard it said that you know, even the most, quote, enlightened teacher is still on, on a journey of awakening. Um, but I don't know, you know, maybe some fantastic enlightened teacher will say, no, 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 my learning is complete. Who knows? But, you know, for us, us mere mortals, yeah. I, I think it's true. We're all on a journey. And, you know, I'm... In this book, I'm just sharing what I've learned, what helps me. People may disagree or know better, or whatever. I'm just, I just felt motivated to share. This is, this is what's helped me. This is, this is how I see things right now. You know, five years time, I'd probably write a different book, or even now, I'd probably write a different book. <laughs> post-COVID book, yeah, a post-COVID book, yeah. Well, um, one of the things that I that I um, it. Uh, when I came to the chapter, it, 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 it was is a, a slight surprise. You have a, early on, you have a chapter called "An Innovative Species," <laughs> where you're where you're describing some of the the development of some of the unique capacities of of the uh, human species, and then the next one is about imagination, and 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 I think that that my that our that our listeners could. Uh, uh, benefit from from um, just a brief description of how how you frame imagination in in a, in a, in you know Sturz in my tradition um, Gurdjieff was famously dismissive of imagination in recent years I've come to realize that there are incredibly creative aspects of imagination and so outline your view if you right. will right yes um and it's it's definitely related coming back to creativity and, and innovation i i mean those two chapters come in the context of building up from what do we want and the context of that is why why do we get attached to things why do we get attached you know so we get attached because Ultimately, we're looking for things that will keep us happy, make us happy. We get attached to the ways we think that should be. And why does why the human beings get attached and not others, animals? I say because at innovation, we are a very creative species, innovative species. And that's what's made us what we are. We, you know, if I look around, everything I see, apart from you know the trees outside, but you know, my computer and the desk is a product of human creativity. We've changed this world in marvelous ways. And so we, and then we start getting attached to, to how to change things. But creativity depends upon imagination. Mm -hmm. when, when we're creative, we, maybe we see a problem and we, you know, go through our mind imagining different ways to resolve it, whatever. But imagination is absolutely crucial, I think, to creativity. And imagination is the ability to, in a way, step back from this reality of the present moment 
by which the present moment reality is what I'm actually experiencing through my body, through my senses. That's what I call the present moment reality. Our imagined reality is actually taking us out into time. Our imagination is either, you know, something we're imagining, something that happened in the past. Our memory is imagination. I mean, imagination literally means to create an image in our mind. And so we're looking to the future. How do I solve this? Or, you know, what am I going to do tomorrow? The imagination takes us out into the past and future. So what I'm saying is there's, there's two, we live in two realities. There's the reality of this here, now, present moment experience. And then we also have an imagined reality in our mind where we spend a lot of our time you know, our thinking is an imagined reality. Our thoughts are appearing in our imagination and they're creating, um, they're, they're imagined, part of the imagined reality. And I'd say we need, we work in both, we work in both realms the whole time. And, you know, I use the example of, you know, if I, if I see a flower and I, I don't know what it is, say, my per- my real present reality is here is this you know lovely yellow bloom or something my I, then in my imagined reality goes i wonder you know wh- how long it's going to last when's it going to die um what's its name why did it grow here and some of this may be very valuable but th- these two things are happening in parallel nearly the whole time the i see part of the challenge is that we spend too much of our time or too much of our attention in the imagined reality to the cost of experiencing our present here and now reality. But for me, the, the, two, the two are absolutely essential to being human and, and go hand in hand. So I wouldn't say imagination is you know something to be decried or something in some way. That's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. But we do need, I think what we do need is to not be so caught up so much of the time in our imagined reality, you know, because we're creating, you know, our imagined reality, we go into, you know, what what would happen when I, you know, I've got to see this person tomorrow and it's going to be a rather difficult conversation. Um, how should this go? What should I say? What if they say this or that, whatever? We're just getting into wasting energy, wasting time. So, Imagine reality is great, but let's, you know, let's catch ourselves when we're spending too much time there and coming back to the being here now. Yeah, I think, I think the, what you're describing as imagination is the um, kind of imagination that Gurdjieff was skeptical of, you know, as, 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 a, as you, I think, uh, as a waste of energy because it's, it's not useful. And I think what, you know, in certain forms of work like magical work, uh, imagination is uh, used more constructively as a mechanism for alignment yeah. so that so that I can align myself with uh, a certain kind of energetic uh, pattern, whether it's the four directions or uh, uh, something along yeah. those lines. And, yeah. and that imagination that then it, then it begins to do something different. It's, it's more like as uh, I think in, the Taoists say, or in Tai Chi, they say that uh, energy follows thought. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so, in that sense, there's a diff- there's a constructive or an active use of imagination that's uh, not 
this kind of reactive patterning that the right. that's a function of the uh, personal self. Right. But I would say it even has it has a very practical role in our in our daily lives. If you, um, you know, if you're planning something, or even just you know. Maybe on a big level, you know, career, you want to build a certain career, you might imagine, you start imagining how that would be the skills you need, whatever it is. Yeah. It's an important part of planning or even just cooking a meal, you know, the imagination. What if I put, you know, a little more of this, this spice in, how will that be? And you, you start imagining in a, in a taste realm of how it would be. So, I, I you know, I'm much more in favor of imagination generally. Yeah. Um, and but not getting caught up in it when we don't need to. Right. So, so sort of unconscious uh, associative uh, uh, thought trains are not not as useful as uh, uh, thinking in the present about alternatives that you might do in terms yeah, of your yeah. action. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So let me um, uh, pose a question that just came up in as a product of this discussion. Um, which is um, uh, you set up sort of a binary between between present moment and and imagination, and but I'm wondering if if in in moments of creative play that binary breaks down a bit that it's the that they interpenetrate one another a bit more in the experience of the body. Um, having pleasure experiencing pleasure in creative play does that make sense it does yes yes and i think you know any any binary distinction is always open to refinement doubt uh yeah or any absolute statement yes yes you're right yeah okay yeah thank you so there was another uh since since i mentioned uh, uh, uh magical work there was another uh Thing you brought up in one of the chapters about synchronicity that let, let, let us say that as if i were to paraphrase the more the more that we can inhabit our authentic self the more the world begins to present itself in, in ways of meaning synchronicities coincidences and things right. like that yeah. which uh, uh would defy the let's say the personality driven mind to explain Right. Or physics. Yeah, or physics, define, yeah. Define physics. Yeah, or, we, have to work, we have to work on a theory about that. Right. <laughs> it defies the whole materialistic paradigm. Right. And, you know, it's definitely, it has an element of magical thinking about it. Um, this was something that came way back when I was studying with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was the founder of TM, and I got to spend some good time with him. I stayed with him in India quite a bit. He was foundational in my early understanding of this, of this whole thing, of the self and the nature of, um, yeah, the nature of self and meditation. He had, he was, something that fascinated me, whenever he was, you know, having, ever being interviewed about our meditation practice, you know, he was interested, like any teacher, in you know how it was going. You know, was it difficult? Were we finding it relaxing? Were we, you know all those things? But his one question he always came to it was like almost the primary thing he was interested in. He was saying, "Were we experiencing increased support of nature?" That's the way he phrased it: increased support of nature. By which he meant, you know, 
Were things just turning out better in our lives? Were we experiencing more synchronicity? And I found his explanation fascinating. He said, you know, when we meditate and we're stepping out of our egoic thought system, we are actually supporting nature in the most fundamental way possible because it's our egoic thought system that leads us to do things out of pride, out of greed, out of envy, out of love of money, whatever. It's our egoic thought system that is at the root of so much of the way we mistreat the world or create problems in the world. So by meditating and stepping out of the egoic thought system, we are supporting nature in the most fundamental way possible, and nature returns the favor. And it's like, what? <laughs> nature returns the favor and supports us. And that's where the sort of the magical thinking comes in. However, I think you know, I've noticed that the people I was with at the time, we I've noticed that in ways which it's clearly not just um some, you know, noticing some coincidence. It's like the world just seemed to work out much, much better, things happening at the right time. In fact, so much of my life then was almost ruled by synchronicity. I mean, it, it led me to become where I am now. If I I think if I hadn't been, you know, meditating deeply on retreats, I think the the support of nature that happened, if that hadn't have happened, I wouldn't be where I am now talking to you. Mm-hmm. So I found it I found it profound and really, really borne out in my own experience. That's go ahead. Yep. And just you know, you can't you can't make synchronicities happen. You can't make coincidence happen. The very nature is their coincidence. But what I realized is you can facilitate their occurrence. And the more, it seems to me, the more centered I am, the more in touch with my authentic self or even the pure self that I am, the more still I am, the calmer I am. It's almost like the more that nature can come in and help me and one of the ways i've sort of understood this is it's like i am the calmer i am i am more open to noticing and following my intuition and and one example was a few years back i was working on another book and i hadn't you know i'd been lazy (laughs) <laughs> whatever and it was a Sunday afternoon I had nothing to do and I just said okay I need to get on with this book stop being you know discipline yourself work on this book and this little voice in the back of my head said go for a walk and I said no come on you know I know you you're always finding some distraction for me and the voice said go for a walk and I just said no 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 and so finally it's just like okay I'll go for a walk if that's what you want I'll go for a walk and I so I did what I sometimes do is take a random walk, um, by which I mean I start off without any destination, but when I reach a certain crossroads, I will see which way to go or something. And on this random walk, I noticed a sign for somebody's art studio. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And carried on. And then on another lamppost, I noticed the same sign. I said, okay, if I see a third sign, I'll go to that art studio. And I noticed a third sign and I went to this art studio and was fascinated by this woman. She was producing absolutely beautiful bronzes. 
And then through a window in her studio, there's a little office, and there's this guy there working at a computer, and he looked at me and waved me in, like, hello, who are you? Come in. We started chatting, and we found we had so much in common, and it led to basically my very early work in the internet when when the internet was dead, the website stuff was just beginning, changed my life. Hmm. And that's a guy, you know, he lived two blocks away. We, you know, we went to the same store. I probably passed him, I don't know how many times in the last year or two, either walking his dog or in the store shopping, who knows? But it was like somewhere my intuition knew there was, there was a p- potential possibility out there. And by following my intuition, I, this happened. And I've, in many cases, you know, where this sort of, where nature support has happened, I realized that in some way or another, I have been more open because I think I've been in a calmer, more relaxed state. I've been more open to follow my intuition. And it's almost as if there's, synchronicities waiting to happen everywhere. Well, that, that makes sense to me. And what I really like about what you just said is, uh, and I'm intrigued by this principle of reciprocity of when we support nature, nature supports us. And and the the example that comes into my mind is when we decided that we would open um, our spiritual bookstore in, in downtown Sebastopol, Many Rivers, books and tea, um, I got it in my head that, that we were going to do it in, in a month because it was like November 1st and we wanted to be open for uh, the day after Thanksgiving, a traditional uh, big sales day. And um, our colleague who had run a bookstore, I'd never run a bookstore before. Um, our colleague who had um, helped run a bookstore for many years thought it would take six months. And when I told him, four weeks, he was um, skeptical, shall we say. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> to say the least. But, um, but and, and to make it happen, we had to have everything, every step had to be coordinated in time. It was a, a long series of steps, installing carpet, removing the previous um uh, features in the book in the in the space getting painting getting bookshelves getting yep. bookshelves installed all that stuff everything was literally if if one thing was delayed by a day then the whole thing would the whole pack of cards would uh, fall over but it all it all came together in that in yeah that it, felt, it felt like there was this and, and that's why yeah and that's why vortex. That's why this this principle of reciprocity is is very interesting to me. And one of the things I really um, appreciated about uh, letting go of nothing, um, because you articulate it in a way that is very uh, um, clear. And my my previous experience with something like this was my teacher's teacher used to uh, uh, jocularly refer to. Um, the office of cosmic coincidence control yes <laughs> and you put yourself in the in the uh in that bureaucracy when you start engaging in uh, uh as you might put it uh, uh foregrounding the authentic self yeah. in the way that you've described in this yes. conversation yeah yeah yes yeah. i call it cosmic choreography 
Ah. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. But so, like, I know, what's yours? Cosmic coincidence control. That's right. Yeah. 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 The alliteration so, is all. Right, right. <laughs> same, same office, different shingles. That's right. right. <laughs> but we've had uh, interesting uh, coincidences come up in association with doing some rituals that were prescribed to us from a friend who is a diviner in an African tradition. And they, it, it, I guess the, what I would say, you know, is when sometimes we've had like Rob and I both had an experience where we both had the same coincidence. I mean, it's like, we both knew, uh, uh, usually our coincidences are like individual things, but this one was like, um, you know, it, it's like the, how is it? The, the, the screen of the, the reality just kind of, uh, ripples and something happens that is uh just defies the uh materialistic explanation yeah yeah and it's wonderful when that happens uh as as you say you can't make it happen so there's it's no good to get attached to it right and i think you know for me all all you can do is marvel at the fact it happens it just requires awe i mean perhaps awe is a better word than marvel just awe yeah yeah how yeah what what is going on here? I have no idea. I would probably never have any idea. I'm not even going to try to work it out. But just thank you. In, in, thank in the uh, in the Shinto tradition, uh, there's a <clears throat> notion of the kami, which Westerners tend to translate as gods or spirits or something like that. But uh, a friend of ours is interested in Shinto and s- sent a video where a Shinto priest is describing what the kami is, and, uh, and it was a woman who was saying. A kami is that which gives uh, that induces awe. So, so when you have that sense of awe, you know that something's there. Mm-hmm. So some, something very alive in the world is uh, is present, and that's that's a very sweet experience. Yeah, nice. Well, well you, you you know, you in the book you have a, a chapter devoted to materialism. Uh, I forget the exact title, and. Um, um, it seems to me that that, that this phenomenon of, of uh, synchronicity that we're describing right now is one of the best arguments against a strict materialist perspective, because um, that strict materialist perspective denies the possibility of, uh, or or it or it. Uh, denatures any meaning from yeah. a, yeah. a uh, uh, these these wonderful synchronicities, right? Yes, yeah. Um, well, that chapter was actually I called the materialist mindset. That's and, right. That's right. And that's more about how we are sucked into this belief that in order to be happy, we have to have or do the right things in the material world, right. as opposed to you know, what I see in so many teachings is, no, no, we have to, there's a natural quality, we call it natural mind, which is already has what we're looking for. Um, but coming back, yes, I would differ, I would actually take a slight um, differing view there. It's like, we, we accept, you know, the synchronicity, the magic, the coincidence. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very hard to 
prove in a scientific way you know the the counter argument is oh you just notice the coincidences that happen the million coincidences that don't happen you don't notice i mean that's right. the standard argument right yeah so it it isn't quite watertight in that way but i mean the view my view of you know what the the real nail in the coffin of the materialist mindset i think as we discussed this on a previous program is the very fact we are conscious the very fact yeah. that that we are having experience the, the materialist mindset the scientific worldview prides itself on its predictability that's its test of mm-hmm. any, any theory any hypo, or not hypothesis but any theory conclusion any law what does it predict and none of contemporary science predicts that we should be conscious you know it may be able to predict you know molecular biology how cells work how the body works how the organism works how the brain works all of that is open to you know predictability we don't we're not there yet but none of that ever predicts that we should have a conscious experience and so that to me is the huge hole in the materialistic paradigm and ironically science i mean the experimentation etc happens in the material world but the you know the hypothesizing the working things out the drawing conclusions all of that the theories all take place in the mind right. and so that to me is the that's the great big anomaly that really is the yeah that's that's the hole in the materialist paradigm the very fact that we are experiencing beings yeah and and it seems like even today uh, there there are the trend is shifting that uh, there's a more uh, even among fairly uh, staid scientists, uh, there's a tendency more towards starting to look at consciousness as something fundamental. And the yes. argument, the argument then is like, is it uh, fundamental alongside matter uh, versus an idealistic pr- perspective, which is actually consciousness gives rise to matter. And that, that, that the uh, front has moved to that conversation now. Yes, it's moving there. Yes. I mean, people like Chris Koch and other people are coming, yeah. you know, who regular philosophers of consciousness are coming around to the idea that it's what's called, I mean, panpsychism in philosophy that my literally mind is everywhere. Consciousness is everywhere. And then, then we have to get into what do we actually mean by consciousness and the whole, right. what you're is a dual, is it a dualistic model or does any, anyway, but yeah, it's fascinating that it's move, moving in that direction. That's that view is getting more and more airtime. Yeah, it is. And uh, we still don't have a lot of tools to describe it in the language of science beyond still metaphor, but it, it does, it does seem to be, Moving that way, I don't know if anyone's come up with a yet a way to frame how this consciousness and the material realm interact, or what that even means. Well, that's an assumption that the two are different. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly. So, uh, uh, one of the chapter titles that I um, uh, particularly liked was. Free won't. Mm-hmm. So um, maybe you could you could just briefly explicate that for for our listeners. Yes, yes. A lot of my titles are somewhat um, oh, what's the word meant to capture your attention. They're provocative. They're free won't, obviously, as opposed to free will. Right. And 
we we usually interpret free will and whether or not we have free will. I don't go into that question. It's, it's a fascinating question. I've written lots on it in other places. But it's the free, the free will to do something. And so the way we test free will is, you know, do you consciously, did you choose to do that? Did you choose to do that? Or, or in a more general social sense, you know, we have freedom to say to say what we like, freedom to live where we want, freedom to whatever it is, marry who we want. So it's freedom to. What I'm looking at here is, is actually freedom from. And that, I think that's what spiritual teachings of freedom are about. It's freedom from in the language we're using here, freedom from the, the machinations of the thinking mind, the, yeah. the got to do this, got to do that, et cetera, et cetera, which just holds us back very often, creates tension, et cetera. And what I'm saying is whether or not we have actually free will in the world to do something, I think we all have free won't. And free won't for me is we can choose not to follow a certain thought. So when we notice some some thought coming in, you know, some whatever it is that is clearly not going to lead us anywhere, I was getting in the way, we have the freedom to say, I won't go there anymore in my mind. It may come back again later, but in that moment, free won't is is choosing not to follow this thought. And um, so we we don't follow the thought. Otherwise, we get off on some train of thought and we might start leading us to do something we later regret and then have to start working on it or whatever. So it's, it's capturing, capturing things in the bud and, you know, things start off in our mind and our thinking. So it's, it's capturing those thoughts that are going to perhaps, you know, we wish we hadn't followed them later. So free won't is just, just that choice, the freedom to choose. I'm not going to follow them anymore. So it's, uh, the way I phrase it for myself is I won't go there yeah. anymore. I won't go there. So that, that's free won't. And again, I find that is, is a very important practice. It's In a way, it's another way of stepping back from the sort of personal identity self to our authentic self. That's Yeah, that's right. And and one of the, one of the things I liked about um, the way you've just framed it and, and, and in the book as well, is that to me, this is, this is like a, um, a very practical way of realizing um, the principle that, that I've um, come to accept uh, it makes sense is that the only real freedom we have is where we put our attention because the universe yes. is, it's awfully big. We're awfully small. Um, we can, we can uh, uh, seek the support of nature by supporting nature in the way that you describe in a subsequent in the subsequent chapter, but um, but where we put our attention is the only is the only real choice we have. And 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 but the way you you frame it in the in this very very short pithy little chapter um, is, I think, where people live. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's and that's uh, that's skillful. There's a aspect of this that um, I really appreciate because I, I think you're right that the question of free will is a, you know, a gnarly one. And we don't necessarily really know where the thoughts come from in our heads. But 
as you say, we do have the freedom to not tune into it. Yeah. And that, that sort of leads me to a notion that comes up. I think the way it's articulated in the fourth way tradition is your being attracts your life. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way, then what I see you describing is that if we choose not to go there, but we return to our authentic self, that that will attract a quality of life that's different than if we are going there and discontent and frustrated because that will attract a quality of life. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so, so it's like the answer that it, I'll, I'll have to work on this because I, but that it's like the answer that uh, you're providing with free won't is it's almost like a, it's, it's an indirect way around. It's like, I have the freedom not to engage, but by doing that, that creates a certain kind of condition of being and that condition of being will attract a certain kind of experience. Yeah. And, and, and it's so in that way, indirectly, I have free will, but what I don't have free will is to like pick the experience and sort of make it happen. You know, right. I can't, I can't grab it and make it happen. I have to invite it to happen. And I invite it by, to happen by creating the conditions by which the experience can emerge. Yeah. 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 And I think the way I conclude that very, uh, it is pithy. I mean, all, many, all these things, I've just tried to boil it right down, cut out all the padding. Like it, the book could have been three times longer. If it was a regular book, but I, just, but I end it by saying, you know, it's the freedom. We normally think of free will as the freedom to choose something or other. And this is the freedom to choose not to choose. Because you know, our thinking is we're choosing to do this, do that. And by free won't, by not following that thought, not going there, we're actually choosing not to choose. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. And, and I mean, I've, I've lately given political rhetoric in the United States of, of late, the, the, the misuse of the idea of freedom, too, is, yeah. is, uh, is so abundant that, um, that this is a, um, a, a lovely, uh, uh, a refreshing note um, that you offer in this book. We just have a few minutes left, so I guess, uh, you know, uh, we talked a lot about this book, which is just now available, and uh, I think... I, I, should, I should say that as a bookseller, I, I, can, uh, I can say that it's, it's, attracting, <laughs> it, yeah, it's attracting a lot of attention. Yeah. I think it's going to be a, a, a quite a success. Yeah. Our, our distributor is totally out of copies, so we're, we're, they're, they're having to go back to the uh, publisher and get more. Yeah. Etc. So, but I wanted to ask, sign. you know, so what's what's next now? Is is uh, uh, you had that chapter on retire, which resonated with me, which you ex explicitly don't frame in the usual meaning <laughs> right. of that word, right? But, yeah. Um, well, right now it's doing these sorts of things, interviews and podcasts, which are actually fascinating to me because this is a whole alternative to the way it used to be with a book out i go on the road and i'd mm -hmm. be lecturing different places doing you know different town every day or two and i i like that because each time i give a lecture i would be seeing new things about the book like my thinking would be developing and i just noticed how you know doing doing these interviews online it's like Everybody comes up with different questions. They're all different. 
And my whole thinking around this whole area is deepening from the question. It's like, ah, yes, I hadn't seen that. And so right now, I'd love to rewrite the book. (laughs) (laughs) Volume two. Volume two. Just just because like, oh, I missed that. Or I could have said that more clearly. Oh, it's like that sort of stuff's going on. I wish I had done, you know, two weeks of podcasts before I published the book. (laughs) Um, But more seriously, what now? You know what? I don't know. I, and I'm open. Um, you know, my career, not like all of a career, but my life has been one of writing books, teaching, lecturing, thinking, loving, I love playing with ideas. And I could do that the rest of my life. And, you know, as I said, slowly retire and till I faded away. But I'm also feeling open to something something different i don't know what it is but i just like the door the door is open if something comes along that says hey yes it's like i'm not i'm not attached to continuing being an author writer speaker whatever i probably will do in some way but i just i don't know i'm just open to see what what do you call it central Cosmic control, the, the, the office of cosmic coincidence control. Well, yeah, yeah, or cosmic, or cosmic choreography. Choreography to, to see to see what it offers me, and maybe maybe there's doors I will step through. So I, I really don't know. I, I have no great no great plans. At the moment, just continuing to you know do this sort of work, launch the book, get it going out into the world, and um, we'll see. Maybe another book. Who knows? I really don't know. All right. Well, well, we want to thank you so much for uh, making yourself available for this conversation that I've enjoyed very much. Yes. Yes. And and um, and best of luck with with those unseen doors. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation, as with our previous ones. Okay. Well, well, thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with author Peter Russell about his latest book, Letting Go of Nothing, Relax Your Mind and Discover the Wonder of Your True Nature, an Eckhart Tolle edition. Peter Russell is an author, speaker, and leading thinker on consciousness and contemporary spirituality. He believes the critical challenge today is freeing human thinking from the limited beliefs and attitudes that lie behind our many problems, personal, social, and global. He is the author of 12 books, including Waking Up in Time and From Science to God. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.